Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessings to be able to be here together this morning as a body, to seek and to serve you as a believer and a follower of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of the importance of this season. On the first Christmas, your angels declared, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace among men whom he is pleased. So today we ask for your peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that will guard our hearts and our mind as we go through different kinds of trials in our families, our jobs, and in the world. You said in this world we would have tribulation, but to take courage that you have overcome the world. As we seek you, you've promised rest for the weary, victory for the battle scarred, peace for the anxious, and acceptance for the brokenhearted. Not just at Advent, but every day of this year, each year. We know that peace on earth can only come when our hearts find peace with you. You are our mighty God, our wonderful counselor, and our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace. So at this time, may you grant us your love, your peace, as we celebrate you as our Lord and Savior this Christmas and always. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Randy and Angie, for lighting our second candle of the Advent season. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. And that is uh, preschool age and through the fifth grade. And parents, if they're signed in, you can, you're welcome to just send them or you're welcome to walk up with them. If you have uh, one of those bulletins, um, you'll have a few things on, uh, on there that are to be, you're to be aware of in the coming weeks. It's Christmas season, so there's lots of Christmas stuff going on in this season as we anticipate, as we prepare, and as we worship uh, the, the newborn king who would become our risen savior. And so we have Christmas parties this evening for both the kids' ministry and the youth ministry. Both of those start at 5.30. They're both in the Family Life Center back there. And so please, um, parents, you, we would love for you to attend the kids' ministry party with your children. And there are some activities particularly planned to be done with kids and parents working together on those. So we'd love for you to be there. Um, and... Uh, there's also other life groups are doing other things tonight, and so usually on Sunday nights, we have kids ministry, youth, life groups. We, we have that going on as normal um, this week. Uh, then we have um, on future Sunday nights, the next couple weeks, we have caroling next week. We have the kids choir performance two weeks from today, which I do want to clarify that kids choir performance is at six o'clock, though the bulletin says 530. That time is at six, and we'll have it right next week, and we'll keep communicating that at six o'clock. There's details about Christmas Eve in the bulletin for you. We will have service on Christmas Eve and on Christmas morning, which is a Sunday morning this year, so please prepare for those. 
the last announcement I wanted to make, I wanted to just refer to something. Does anybody remember where you were on this Sunday last year? If you were worshiping in Fellowship Bible Church, you were in the cave out back. Um, because that was the first Sunday that we um, gathered in the youth room in a tight space, uh, shoulder to shoulder, to sing Christmas carols together. So it's the one-year anniversary, really, of that first um, service that we were in a small setting together. Um, we didn't know at the time that that would take nine months that we would be worshiping in that setting before we'd be back in this room that is different and beautiful, and we're so excited to have Christmas and the Advent season in here. I was asked a lot about this last week, because last week was the one-year anniversary, really, it's not the exact date, but the Sunday anniversary of the fire. It was the first Sunday of Advent that, the, that I had left a candle burning and had done damage to the building. Um, I've been asked about that a lot over the year. Um, what have we learned? How has this affected our church? Are we allowed to joke about it, or do we have to be serious at all times? And the answer is yes, we're allowed to joke. But, yet, but in the joking, in the lightheartedness, we can learn something too. We've learned a lot about um, God and his faithfulness, about his protection over our church, about the way that he knit us together through a challenge that we shared, about the graciousness that God's people can show to each other and to a particular person that made a mistake. Uh, I've learned a lot, I hope you've learned a lot, about the nature and the community of this local church as we face that together. And I hope that we can be more confident in God's provision going forward. Because going forward, we'll have plenty of trials ahead, with plenty of challenges ahead. And what we learned through that trial is that people make mistakes and that God is a forgiving God and that God's people are called to, called to show love and grace to each other. And if there's one thing that from the beginning I was hoping we would learn through it, is that we are not a group of people that get everything right every time and expect perfection of each other. We are continually growing. We're honest about our mistakes. We're honest about our shortcomings. We're able to encourage each other to grow through it. So yes, joke all you want. I lit one of those candles this morning. Randy and I were talking about it. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to be the one to light the one, but I did, and I let Randy take care of the other one for today. We can joke about it, but we can learn a beautiful picture of God's grace and God's provision as well. So if you don't mind, and I have the microphone, so you don't mind, um, I'm going to return thanks to God for his protection over us in the last year and just praise him. But as I do that, I also want to thank you. And this is where I stop, I stop being pastor and just in, in a person for a moment here. You have been incredibly gracious and helpful. Um, you have been incredibly kind and supportive. And this season has been a season of growth for our church. And I want to clarify, for me personally, as I have seen the church be the church, I've seen so many people step up to make this restoration and rehabilitation of this room and this building possible. And we're so pleased with where we are in the physical description of the building but we're also pleased with where we are as a spiritual community of Jesus that has grown and learned something about each other through this. So let's return thanks to God. Father, I praise you that we are here in this room celebrating the Advent season, worshiping you, 
I praise you for what we learned in close quarters last year. I remember, Father, early on, I think it was this first Sunday last year, that somebody came to me and said, you know what, we should just do this when we sing Christmas music. We should just be in tight quarters so we can really hear each other sing. I pray we learn from that, Father. We learn from the beauty and the encouragement that we experience by hearing each other sing and sing loudly in close quarters. I pray that this room would be just as filled as the other room. I pray this room would be just as filled with the joy of this Christmas season, the joy of who you are and what you have done. And Father, as we struggled for nine months to do two services and have tight seating and figure out the limits that that room had and how close we were able to pack people in, Father, I praise you we have more space now, but I pray that you would fill it and you would use us to be your ambassadors, to be an inviting people that go out and share the message of who you are and what you have done with our community and that we would be vigilant about inviting people into what you are doing through your local church and specifically through us here at Fellowship. God, you are so good. You have provided for us so richly over this last year and we praise you. So we praise you to be in this beautiful room celebrating this beautiful season, having learned in a deeper way about the beauty of the Christian community that that you have called us to together. So God, give us joy in this season as we worship you together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm gonna invite you to turn to Isaiah 1, and we'll open our Advent series. Though it's the second Sunday of Advent, we wanted to finish a section in 1 Timothy last week, and we'll jump into Isaiah this week. This will carry us through a few passages of Isaiah through December and actually into New Year's Day, January 1st, we'll speak on Isaiah as well. We're not covering the whole book. It's 66 chapters. It's a lot. But what we're doing is we're focusing on how Isaiah prepares us for the birth of the Savior in this season. We all know that Christmas is a big deal. It's a big deal from a Christian standpoint as we celebrate the Messiah. It's a big deal from a cultural standpoint as it's a major holiday and so much of life surrounding us in our cultural setting is focused on Christmas and the coming of Christmas. Christmas is something that must be prepared for. We celebrate Advent where we light candles each week where we give you devotionals that you can read, where we preach series focused on the themes and beauty of Christmas, we celebrate Advent as a preparation period. Because when you look into the Old Covenant Scriptures, the Old Testament, you see that God was preparing His nation over many generations, thousands of years, for the coming of His Messiah. And as we prepare for Christmas whether it's the preparations of of buying gifts and wrapping presents and planning parties and preparing for travel and figuring out what the menu's going to be for all the various Christmas activities you have. There's so much physical preparation to do in this season. We need not lose sight of the significance and the importance of a spiritual preparation where we go into God's Word where we come together as a Christian community to examine ourselves and prepare for what Christ is doing and bringing in this season. 
Because here's the risk. If we do not prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ, if we do not discipline ourselves to remind ourselves where we once were and what the birth of Christ has achieved for us now, then it would be very easy, and I'm telling you, very easy, to take for granted the birth of the Messiah, to take for granted the cross that he would one day suffer and die on, to take for granted the empty tomb. Because all of the story of who Jesus is and what he has done to achieve salvation for us it is wrapped up in his coming, God himself sending himself to be born as a child and to grow into the man that would be our savior, the lion of Judah and the suffering lamb, all in one person, God and humanity in perfection brought together as our sacrifice. We need never lose sight of that. And we have a great benefit that Christmas is such a, of an important season in our cultural that we can actually spend some time really thinking and preparing for it. But with the cultural focus on Christmas, you know it and I know it, comes a whole lot of distraction too. And it would be really easy to focus on the physical preparation for Christmas without focusing on the spiritual preparation for Christmas. So as we prepare for the birth of Jesus, we prepare by seeing how the nation of Israel was prepared. And in the nation of Israel, we see a picture of all of humanity. Because the struggles that we see, we're going to go all through, through all of Isaiah chapter 1 today. It's, it's a long chapter. It's 32 verse, 31 verses. I'm going to read them all to begin with here. And we're not going to pick apart every verse the way we would typically, like when we go through 1 Timothy. But I'm going to give a broad overview of Isaiah 1. And what we are going to see is a picture of a nation that has completely lost its way, has rejected God, is in need of repentance and in need of redemption. But in the nation of Israel, we'll see ourselves too. Though we are not a part of the Old Testament covenant of promise with God that God made with his chosen nation Israel, we see ourselves as we suffer from the same problems that Israel suffered from. We as God's new covenant people, we are still fighting against the unfaithfulness we show. In Isaiah 1, here's what we're finding today. Humanity's greatest need. So let me give you some background here. As we come into Isaiah, recognize that today, what we're going to be talking about is sin. And what we're going to say is that Every single one of us is a sinner, and every other human being is a sinner as well. And sinners need to repent and need to be redeemed. And that is great news. Because one of the things that we see from living in society, that guilt is that guilt and shame can be crushing. Guilt and shame can be discouraging, disheartening. But true conviction of sin, as it is presented in the scriptures, is not a crushing message, but is actually a message that ends in good news. Believe it or not, to say that you are guilty, to say that in your sin you stand condemned before God, is a message that should be received in gladness, because when that message comes from the scriptures, 
It comes with a solution. When that message comes from anywhere outside of the scriptures, there is no solution. There's a lot of talk in our culture today. We've all heard the stories of it and seen the examples of it. This thing that they call cancel culture, where somebody offends some, some sort of cultural standard or moral standard of society as a whole, so that person just gets canceled. They lose a job, they lose influence, opportunity, whatever. The problem with cancel culture is there's no good news, there's no gospel, there's no path to redemption and reconciliation. And if there is, then it's the world's path and it's awkward and misguided. But where we live in the scriptures, we see that actually the news is far worse on the front end and far better on the back end. That actually, it's not just that we have made these mistakes to offend the, the nature or the, the, um, uh, the way of life of today's society. It's that our mistakes are missing the mark in active rebellion against God himself. So it's not just that you've messed up. It's that you're a rebel against the one true king. So the front end is far worse than what society would tell you. You're not a good person that made a mistake. You're a bad person. You're a person that's a rebel against God. We have to be confronted with that truth so that the good news that flows through that, that God has a solution to humanity's greatest need, we need that good news. And so in order to receive the good news, we got to be really honest with ourselves on the front end with the bad news. So I'm just going to tell you right now, Isaiah 1 feels like it's a whole lot of bad news because it's preparing you for the good news. So let's go there. Isaiah 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, when he, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners." And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts has not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. 
Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies. I will avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the oaths that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. I told you. It's a lot of heaviness. Lots of things that are kind of hard. I don't even know what a cucumber field is like. Why is that? What, what was he talking about there? There are certain things in there because Isaiah is a prophet given a prophecy to God's people, an ancient people, there are things in that scripture that are hard for us to grasp at first reading. That's why we do this together, okay? That's why we come together, we open up the scriptures, we open up some that are easy and full of good news, and we open up some that are hard and, and need some interpretation and need some study in order to understand what God's saying to us through this passage. I'm gonna give you the highlights right away. We are speaking today about humanity's greatest need. It's the need of the nation of Israel in Isaiah 1. It's the need of the church of Jesus in the new covenant and in our day and age. It's the need of every people. Humanity's greatest need is first to come to an awareness of our brokenness. To come to an awareness of our rebellion. That's what verses 1 through 9 give us. And then verses 10 through 20 show the picture of repentance. We need first to understand our brokenness, and then we need to repent. And finally, in verse 21 through 31, we see the, the, the culmination of the need. We need redemption. 
And what this chapter, this prophetic chapter from Isaiah to Israel that God is is speaking to us through this morning is telling us that when we recognize our brokenness before him and when we respond in repentance, God has promised redemption. And the story of the gospel is right here in this beautiful Old Testament uh, prophecy. But let's look at at verse 1, and I want to tell you a little bit about the background here. Isaiah was the son of Amos. Who was Amos? We don't actually fully know. Tradition says that Amos was the brother of Amaziah, and Amaziah was a king of Judah, which would mean that Isaiah's uncle was once the king. So he was part of the royal family, but not part of the royal line. And then after Amaziah, Uzziah became king, and then Jotham, and then Ahaz and Hezekiah. Isaiah ministered in the nation of Judah. So if you know your Old Testament history, or if you don't, here's where we are, okay? The nation is one nation for a while. God plants a nation in his people, and God puts a king there, and then the nation splits. Israel is up north, and Judah is in the south. Ten tribes, there were 12 tribes of Israel, ten went north to form the nation of Israel. And two stayed south to form the nation of Judah, with the capital city of Judah being Jerusalem. Isaiah ministers in this period of time in which the nation is split. Isaiah lives in Jerusalem. Isaiah ministers in the nation of Judah in Jerusalem. And he does so for about 40 years. The events that are described in the book of Isaiah span about 40 years. From the year that King Uzziah died when Isaiah was called in in Isaiah chapter 6, up until the, uh, about 700, that's 740 B.C., and then about 700 B.C. is when the nation of Israel fully falls to the Assyrian invasion. So all through this period, as Isaiah is writing to the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom is in great distress as this foreign power called the Assyrian Empire is coming and putting them under siege and attacking, invading, all of these different things. So 66 chapters, 40 years, and Isaiah is continually talking to people that don't listen. Next week, we're going to see that. As we prepare for Christmas, the reason I, I wanted to focus on, these, on, on this passage of Isaiah first, this week and next week, show us the ultimate way we prepare for Jesus by recognizing fully who we are ourselves and recognizing fully who God is. Today is a picture of ourselves, a picture of humanity from Isaiah 1. Next week, we're going to go to Isaiah 6 and see a picture of God and his righteousness, holiness, and purity. So as we unpack chapter 1 here, first, I told you, 1 through 9 gives us, that our, gives us the picture of our need as an awareness of brokenness. The illustration that God gives us here is in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 3 says, an ox knows its owner, a donkey knows its owner, and Israel, my people, don't know me. The picture is of a child who was raised and decided he doesn't want to listen to his father's voice anymore. He wants to find a second opinion He wants to find a new leader. He wants to find somebody else that's going to give him a different way of life, a different way of living. The picture in Isaiah 1, 2, and 3 there is God saying, animals don't get tired of a master's voice, but children get tired of mom and dad's voice. 
We know that's true, right? At a certain stage, developmentally, children start to question mom and dad. There comes a point where you, as a parent, you recognize you have already or you will someday that you don't just need to tell your kid the same thing over and over again. That the beauty of the local church is that other adults can actually make an impact in a child. That sometimes a child begins to question mom and dad and needs somebody else to step in and affirm the beauty of, of what mom and dad are presenting. It's a normal developmental stage within a child, so we have to be careful about the adults that, that we encourage our kids to be around. It's, a, it's an act of wisdom to have your adults, to have your young people engage in a local church, in the Christian community, in whatever way to where there's other Christian adults who make their decisions based off of Scripture and establish their standards through Scripture that can encourage and speak into your child. Well, what, what God is showing us here about the nation of Israel is that they're acting like a child. And they just got tired of listening to God's ways. And they said, you know what? We've been trying Yahweh's way for a long time. Let's try something different. Let's see if there's some other God out there that has another way of living that might be preferable. In the same way, a child doesn't like mom and dad's rules, so they decide, well, I'm just going to run away from home. I'm going to find somewhere else. I'm going to find a new set of rules. I'm going to find a new way of living. That's what Israel is doing in running from God and running to idols and other, um, other sources or other false gods. And so, we need to recognize, first of all, the picture here is that the nation of Israel is like a child rebelling against a parent. That's verses 2 through 4, if you want to write it down. 2 through 4 give us a picture of rebellion, child rebelling against parent. And then in verse 5 and 6, it's not just rebellion that's our problem, it's sickness. He says in verse 5, the, head is, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot to the head, there's no soundness, just bruises and sores. What he's saying there is the whole body is infected. So our brokenness is a picture of rebellion in 2 through 4, or 2, two through 4, a picture of sickness in 5 and 6, and a picture of desolation and complete depravity in 7 and 8. He says, your country lies desolate. You are being overthrown, devoured by foreigners. And then in verse 9, the culmination of this, the culmination of the picture of Israel's wickedness. If the Lord of hosts, verse 9, had not left us a few survivors, we surely would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah the ultimate Old Testament picture of depravity and sin. What God is telling his people, Israel, and what God is telling us, humans who have sinned and fallen away just like Israel, that your rejection of God is an act of rebellion, an act of sickness in which the whole body is sick, and an act that demonstrates our death and destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah. This is how broken we are. This is the bad news that's actually good news. Because when we hear the truth, and when we become convicted of our sin, of our rebellion of God, against, our rebellion against God, of our systemic illness, of our, um, of our rejection of God's ways, and of our actual spiritual death, then we start to recognize that God, in saving us, doesn't just fix something that's broken, 
He doesn't just bring back a rebel. He doesn't just heal someone that's sick. He actively raises the dead in our salvation and our redemption. All of those pictures are there in Scripture. Sin is, the definition of the word for sin is missing the mark, failing to live according to God's law. But sin is described as missing the mark, as rebellion, as sickness, and as death. All in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. We need to recognize the fullness. That we just, we don't need a mechanic. We don't need a doctor. We don't need somebody that's going to help us with a few things that are going wrong in our lives. We don't need a counselor. We need somebody that can raise the dead. Because our capacity to do good apart from God is nothing. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's when he steps in to redeem us. So the first thing all of society needs to know is our brokenness. And the second thing we all need is repentance. Verse 10. Verse 10 starts out by telling us, 10 through 20 are focused on repentance. And 10 starts out by telling us, um, your sacrifices are not helpful. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings. You keep burning lambs. It's not helping. I've had enough of the fat from the well-fed beast that you offer to me. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats that you're offering. And you say, now wait a second. If you're a good student of the scriptures, you're like, wait a second, what gives? God told Israel to do all these sacrifices. Why is God now not pleased with them? God is not pleased with them because of the brokenness of their sacrifices. It's because they're obeying in the outward things by offering the sacrifices. All the while, their hearts are continuing to actively rebel against him. All the while, they're trying to They're trying to cover their bases by following after other gods too. So sure, they'll follow God's law of sacrificing to him, but they'll violate God's law by also sacrificing to others just in case. That's the problem here. The problem is that they obeyed portions of the law and not all of the law. And we, in our depravity and in our sinfulness, we can be prone to the same things. The truth is, just as the, the nation of Israel's sacrifice was sort of double-minded, where they would sacrifice and live unfaithful at the same time, we know, if we're honest with ourselves, our worship to God, we face the same problems. That sometimes in our worship, we are double-minded. That we come in and we want, to, we want to be zealous for who God is and we want to worship him and praise him when we're all gathered around the, the accountability and the energy of the community. But when we go out of this place and are, are living our lives on our own day after day after day, the zeal for the word of God, the zeal for obedience to God, the zeal for worship, it fades when you're away from the energy of public worship. God said he wanted sacrifices but he didn't want fake sacrifices. God wants us to worship him, but he is not asking us to worship him with a fake and divided heart. In the same way, what the people are doing would be like a spouse who has offended a husband, who has offended a wife, and decides, if I bring flowers, it's all good, right? But but those big acts of repentance, I'm sorry, I brought you flowers, I brought you this present. I brought you chocolates. Those only work so long, right? Because at some point, the wife picks up on the fact 
that he apologizes a lot, and he has never changed. And his actions continue to be the same. We know, we know that that happens. And God is saying, enough is enough. Stop sacrificing if you have no intention to obey the rest of my commands. I don't want empty sacrifices. That's not what I'm asking you for. In verse 12 and following, he says, sacrifices, the problem is that they have been accompanied by corruption and not righteousness. You can't sacrifice your way out of your disobedience in other areas. You can't apologize your way out of your rebellion against God. In verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. The problem is not the sacrifices. The problem is the sacrifices offered while abusing people, while being unjust in other areas, while not caring for the fatherless and the widow. But here's the good news, guys. Okay? We're, we're, we're getting beat up on right now. I am beating up on you. I'm sorry for that. I'm just telling you the truth. So 1 through 9 tells us we need to be aware of our sin. 10 through 17 so far has told us you've got to recognize your sin so that you can repent. And it's not just about sacrifices. It's sacrifices plus something else. Verse 18, God says, now, I have a solution if you will listen to me. Verse 18, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What verse 18 tells the nation, I've got a plan. And it's a plan for your good. It's a plan for your redemption. And if you would just come close and listen to me, I'll tell you. And then in the chapters that follow, what Isaiah does is he tells the nation, little by little, this is the plan. And, and, and the scriptures that we're going to read as we go through this Advent season, the beauty of unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, is that is given, the beauty of that passage, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, that beauty in that passage that we know and we sing about at Christmas comes in the context of you coming near to God and God saying, let us reason together, listen to me, I'm going to give you the solution to your greatest problem. I'm enacting your redemption. Come close, listen and see. I have a plan. This is why conviction of sin is good news. Because we don't just know that there's a problem, but we know that the problem we have has a solution. There's nothing more frustrating than driving a car in which something is going wrong and you can't find the solution. It's the same with anything that's broken. Maybe it's a medical problem. There's something wrong. You go to the doctor, you get scan after scan, you get evaluated, and you can't figure out what's wrong. It will drive you crazy trying to find solutions to problems that you know the problem's there, you just don't know exactly what the problem is, and because you don't know exactly what the problem is, you can't find a solution without a diagnosis of the problem. God's telling us, I know the problem. Listen to me. Let me diagnose the problem, and let me be the one to provide the solution. So all, all of society, all of humanity, that is so frustrated with life, in which we're, we're struggling with mental health all over our nation and our society, 
We have a nation that's struggling with depression. We have a nation that is struggling with a lack of satisfaction and frustration. We have anger. We have disappointment. All of these things are people that are aching for the fullness of restoration that the gospel gives. And, and trust me, mental health has, we, we need to be careful and we need to be wise and diligent about mental health diagnoses. But beyond that too, we need to recognize also that so much of the brokenness of hearts and minds are people that are longing for a solution to a problem that they're misdiagnosing. And if you misdiagnose the problem, and you misdiagnose the fact that you are a sinner in need of salvation, and you think you're just unhappy with your current life, then what you're going to do is you're going to come up with all sorts of bad solutions. You're going to self-medicate your problem with foreign substances. You're going to say, the problem is my boss, I just need to get a new job. You're going to say, the problem is my spouse, I just need to get a new spouse. You're going to say, the problem is my church, I'll find a new church. The problem is my God, I'll find a new religion. When the problem for all of it is that you are a sinner that is rebelling against God and you need a radical solution that can only come from a divine source. And that solution starts to be unpacked in verse 21. The redemption part of this passage. Though a faithful city has become a whore, God is working. Those whom God loves have rejected him in verses 21 and 23. In verse 24 through 26, he says the unfaithful will be restored, not because they all of a sudden flip a switch and they start becoming faithful again, but actually the unfaithful will be restored by the faithfulness of God. He says, verse 25, and this is again the third section, which is redemption. Verses 21 through 31 focus on redemption. In verse 25 within that, I will turn my hand against you, meaning, hey, punishment's coming. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your drosses with lie and remove all your alloy. So God has turned his heart, or has, has turned himself against Israel, against his people. But then he says, I will restore you. I'll restore your judges as at the first, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So in one setting, God calls them unfaithful and uses extreme language, calls them calls the nation a whore. And then later, he restores the nation himself and calls Jerusalem a faithful city. Is that because of the nation's work? No. It's because the nation has become aware of their need, has repented, and God has come in to provide a solution. In verse 27, we start to see, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. Let me tell you something. All of God's people are redeemed the same way. The nation of Israel, the new covenant people, the church, all who are redeemed to the family of God are redeemed the same way. By God's perfect justice. In which sin can be punished and yet life can be granted to sinners in the same action. And where those who repent can be declared righteous not because they have lived out righteousness, but because they have received righteousness. You recognize that's the gospel. In the gospel, justice is good news because justice and mercy meet together in the love and the faithfulness of God. And righteousness is good news, though we cannot attain it on our own. Righteousness comes as a gift 
Verse 27 points us to the work of the Messiah, the child who would be born, who would be the one to satisfy God's justice and be the one who would give righteousness to those who repent. Verse 27 is all about Jesus. None of that, the redemption by justice and the righteousness for those who repent cannot be achieved without Jesus coming to live a perfectly righteous life to die a death that satisfies God's justice in which the sin of the world is put on Jesus so that the righteousness that Jesus lived out, the good that Jesus did, could be exchanged for our bad, our bad on Jesus, Jesus taking the penalty for our bad, and us receiving the benefit of his good, his righteous living attributed to us instead. But, verse 28, not everybody's going to receive that. Rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. So what I told you is that this passage is all about preparing for Christmas, preparing for the newborn king, preparing for who Jesus is and what he offers. And we have a really basic picture through some really hard verses. We recognize that we are sinners, we are rebels, we are dead in our sin. We recognize that the only thing we can do is repent. We can't save ourselves. We can just repent. Repentance means more than just saying I'm sorry, but repentance means a full intention to do the word, the biblical word for repentance actually means to turn around. It means to do a 180. It means I'm going this way, I repent, and I actively turn this way. Not I look back and say I'm sorry while I keep going the wrong way. If sin is this way, repentance means I stop going this way and start going that way. I'm sorry just says I'm sorry and keeps going in the same way towards the path of sin. Repentance is a turn. It's a shift. And it's a shift that we can repent, but we cannot make ourselves new. We can't repent our way into newness of life. Only through the act of Jesus dying on the cross and being raised again do we have that offer. And so it would be a real shame to think that, that Christmas is all about hope and joy and peace and we can just be happy and sing and be with family and be joyful without recognizing that the hope, joy, and peace of Christmas is conditional because some will come to Christmas and seek to find hope and joy but then, but then God at the end of days will say to them that you're not in verse 27 of Isaiah 1, you're in verse 28. You're not those who have been redeemed by justice and through who repentance have gained righteousness. You are those who are still considered rebels and sinners because you continue to rebel and sin against God. It's not, a, it's not the season. It's not the decorations. It's not the joy. It's not the family, though all those things are beautiful. It's the fact that sin can now be atoned for because the king of the world, the king of the universe, has come as a child to live a perfect life to die a sinner's death, to be raised again to a new life so that we, too, could have our sin paid for, be given his righteous life, and live a life that is eternal. So what do we do with this? I'll give you four R's as we close. We recognize, we recognize that all of humanity faces the same problem that the nation of Israel did. All of humanity faces the problem of brokenness, sickness, and failure, and ultimately being dead in our sin. And dead people can't save themselves. 
So we recognize the problem. And then we repent of our sin. We, we actively say, and we, we, brothers and sisters, we have to be clear in our repentance. General repentance that says, yeah, I'm a bad guy that messed up sometimes. That, that, that is good. It's a start. But we need to recognize the fullness of so many of our motives are actually far more sinful than we might recognize. As you grow in Christ, one of the things you learn is you're actually more sinful than you thought you were. It can be discouraging sometimes to grow up and recognize, man, when I was 15 and gave my life to Christ, I thought I was this bad. And now I recognize I'm way worse than I thought I was back then. I thought I would have everything figured out by now. But I don't. Because as we grow, we recognize the fullness of our sin more. And it also gives us a picture of the beauty of Christ and his gospel as we go. We recognize the problem. We repent of our sin. And we remember those of us that have been redeemed, I'm going to ask the band to come up at this point. Those of us that have been redeemed, we remember that, that you have been redeemed. But some of us can't remember our past redemption because it hasn't happened. Because we haven't fully repented, we haven't fully come to Jesus and said, no, it's not my way, it's your way. Jesus, I want you to dictate my life. I believe in you, I know some things about you, but I've never fully given you my life. That is, is true of some of us in this room, that we haven't fully given our lives to Jesus, every single one of us. And if that's you, then seek your redemption today. But if, if you have received your redemption, let's remember it in great detail, who you were before Jesus and who you are after Jesus, what he has attained for you, and then we can, the fourth R, recognize, repent, Remember, rejoice. When we truly understand all of this, then we can rejoice. Which rejoice literally just means resound in joy. Repeat the sounding joy. That's what rejoice means. If you remember the depth of your own sin, the beauty of Christ's sacrifice, the only proper response is to adore to come into his presence, to worship him, to adore him, to rejoice before him. This is our energy for obedience now. Because those who have been forgiven much, forgive others much. Those who have been declared righteous when we couldn't earn it for ourselves, now have a new energy to pursue the righteousness that has been given to us to bring honor and glory to a king that loved us so much he descended and came to earth as a child so that we could be with him. That is our energy, that's our fuel, and that's our goal through this hope that he gives us to live a life that is now worthy of him, to worship him and to praise him and to stand on, on the hilltops and shout his name and shout his glory, but also to come into his presence and to fall down before him and in the sweet beauty of what he has done to adore him. So I'm going to ask you, stand and sing with us. If you want to receive redemption today, come forward, and I'll help you walk that path of finding the truth. I'll answer any questions. But stand, and let's sing, let's adore him together.
Father, there is no better response to the beauty of what you have done and the grace of all that you have given to us than for us to come in adoration. So remind us each day, Father, to adore you, to start our days with adoration of who you are and what you've done because it is out of gratitude that we live most faithfully and that we live most in the hope and joy that this season can bring. When we recognize in fullness the despair of where we once were and all that you have achieved for us. So God, as we receive the blessing of the Lord today through your word, send us out in your strength because it's in our weakness where we recognize our depravity that we receive your strength. So make our strength perfect as we put all of our hope and all of our trust in you this week. May the nations know and may our community know that you have loved us, that you have saved us, and that offer is there for them as well of hope, peace, and joy. We love you, Father. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.